This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this country and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to Under One Blue Roof, your podcast exploring the problem of climate-driven homelessness. Here, we ponder some of the big questions about housing, social justice, planetary boundaries and more, and listen to stories from experts in the field who explain just how it's all related. Let's get to know the human face of climate change. Hi, and thanks for joining us under One Blue Roof. I'm your host, Marushka Soldana, a Master of Environment student and social enterprise practitioner. With increased risk of droughts, heat waves, and bushfires as a result of our changing climate, human settlements are having to recover and better adapt. I'm joined today by Dr. Simon Bradshaw to start unpacking what this means for present and future generations. Simon is the Research Director on Climate Science and Impacts at the Climate Council. Simon has been a writer and campaigner for climate action for over a decade and was formerly the Climate Change Advocacy Lead at Oxfam Australia. Simon's research and advocacy has taken him to the Torres Strait Islands, Tibet, India, throughout the Pacific and to many rounds of international climate negotiations. He is passionate about climate justice and the role of climate action in reducing poverty and inequality. His research with the Climate Council covers extreme weather, bushfires, health, security, and many other areas of climate science and impacts. Simon, thanks for being here. Hello, Mariska. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be joining you. Great to have you on. I've really been looking forward to talking with you about the state of climate policy in Australia and globally. You've had this really interesting journey, I think, through your career and have lived and worked in many beautiful parts of the world. How have some of those travels shaped your relationship to place and home? Sure. Well, thank you, Marishka, and for your work and for the chance to be part of this, this very important discussion. Well, I live on, on beautiful Darug country, which, like every part of this continent, um, there's First Nations, unceded land that's been beautifully cared for for thousands of generations. And um, I'm very blessed to live on this particular part of the planet, which definitely very much sustains me through these difficult times working on climate change. I'm on the edge of Barara Valley, surrounded by wonderful bush and bird life and, and waterways. And uh, it's also a reminder of, you know, what, what is at stake? The fact that, um, you know, these incredible landscapes, all that history, all that culture, of course, is directly threatened by climate change. And that has very real impacts on um, people and places we love and on our security, which we'll, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. So, I'm lucky to have a, a secure life here, very nicely connected to a part of the country that uh, is very, very dear to me. But I have been very fortunate over the years and particularly working on international development with, with Oxfam to travel to and, and learn from a number of different communities who are you know, working with a lot of determination, often with very few resources to you know, respond to the climate crisis. And that's meant being in many parts of the Pacific up in the incredible Torres Strait Islands, up in Tibet, on the roof of the world. Places which are, are very different, facing very different challenges, but there's certain common themes I think you find wherever you go, which is that it's that 
communities who have you know contributed the least to the causes of climate change and who are harboring so much incredible wisdom on how to live sustainably and how to build strong communities. It's those same people who tend to be being hit first and hardest, sadly, by the impacts of climate change, also by the direct impacts of fossil fuel mining on countries. So there's a profound injustice and inequity at the heart of the climate crisis, which um, you know you see very much here in Australia or all over the world. And I think it really has to guide how we think about climate change and also how we develop solutions. Because as I said, many of those who are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis who you know, at the extreme do fit face being displaced from their land and homes. So often the holders of the very knowledge and the values and solutions that we need right now. So long and the short, so much I think if this is about listening to communities on the front line and understanding what's going to work for the planet and what's going to work for people. And I imagine we'll probably keep coming back to that during the conversation. Yeah. Community is such a key part of solution making. And I think as well, knowledge sharing when it comes to how we implement policy and work together on some of these issues. There's just so much to learn when I think about it from local communities and cultures. But it's also recognizing that we fundamentally need to decolonize the way that we've built our systems and institutions. These, you know, hundreds of years of economic growth has created a real disparity between what we know we should do to protect people and the planet and what we're actually doing in practice. In reality, there's this really big gap that exists and there's so much collective wisdom and possibility that comes from community when adequate space is made for consultation and collaboration. So that's really exciting. And I think that the Climate Council is at the centre of some really important research and advocacy on reducing greenhouse gas emissions towards Australia's target of net zero by 2050. Could you give us an insight into what's being worked on at the moment and what effect that's having right now in the climate justice movement? Oh, look, first of all, I think just to echo the important point you made there, there is so much possibility in the current moment. I mean, the stakes are extremely high, and I'm sure we'll talk a little about the, the gravity of what we're looking at with the climate science. But, you know, there are some convenient truths in that if we do this smart, if the solutions are informed and people understand the challenges we're facing, and if we do really smart things where we move together, then we can be tackling climate change while, um, you know, building healthier prosperous kind of uh, futures. Um, but to the work that Climate Council has been doing, um, look, we're extremely lucky to work, first of all, with some fantastic scientists, but also economists, uh, health professionals, a whole range of people who have extraordinary you know, knowledge about climate change and about solutions. And we're also lucky to have a large number of partner organizations right around the country, you know, farmers, um, people with a lot of skin in the game who are also incredibly you know, effective um, advocates for their communities and uh, have a lot of knowledge when it comes to solutions. So a lot of what we do at Climate Council is, first of all, elevating a lot of those expert voices around the country and also helping share those stories of, um, you know, the challenges that we're going through and what the solutions are. And one project this year that I've been particularly proud of and invested in was looking at the mental health impact of recent extreme weather disasters. And we did a 
very big national scientific survey that looking back over the last few years, understanding the impact that events such as the devastating floods up in the Northern Rivers, but also the 2019, 2020 fires, what this had done for the you know mental well-being of individuals and communities. And alongside that, ran a big community survey, inviting people to come forwards with their own stories. And we were incredibly grateful for you know, hundreds of people who engaged with this study, you know, with a lot of courage and, you know, sharing what had been very confronting things that they'd been through. But through that study, we were able to, first of all, I think, give voice to um, a lot of people's raw experiences of extreme weather disasters, including being displaced. We were able to give voice to a lot of what communities were saying they needed in terms of you know, supporting their local strengths and, you know, building further on the, on the resilience of their communities and being able to thrive in the future. And we were able to, um, you know, lift the lid on a very sort of human dimension of the climate crisis because it's often when we talk climate science, we talk a lot of numbers, we point at a lot of graphs, uh, but, you know, ultimately we are talking about uh, our lives, our well-being, our futures, our security. And that was one I think, project that was, was very important. And, of course, at the same time, we uh, are engaged very much with the current policy debates at the federal level all the different levers and things we have to do to make sure that our emissions are plummeting this decade, which absolutely have to, but that we're moving ahead in ways that's uh, you know, supporting communities that are having to transition out of older industries and you know, build new futures, that we are advocating for those communities who are really facing the brunt of climate change through worsening floods and fires and ensuring their voices are heard and that we're designing strategies to adapt and cope with the impacts that are coming. So there's a whole range of things that we're lucky to be involved with uh, that's really about communicating the latest science and economics around climate, that's about communicating real-world experiences, and that's pursuing solutions in ways that really not only get Australia's emissions plummeting, but that really you know, are built on the, the needs and strengths of everybody on this beautiful continent, but particularly those who, of course, are disproportionately affected for various ways by extreme weather disasters and other impacts of climate change. For sure. And often something that we do hear a lot of is climate change being referred to in different ways in the media. Terms like climate crisis, global warming, climate breakdown, global heating and environmental destruction. These are all terms that are used to invoke a really deep sense of urgency. And in response, the type and the scale of action that we're pursuing needs to be matched to that urgency. It needs to be really bold if we want to protect these places where we live. Could you break down what it actually means when we use the words climate change and terms like it? Sure. Look, very often I think we are pointing at fundamentally the same thing. Basic reality that we have through our actions, through uh, digging up coal, oil, and gas, burning enormous quantities over a short period of time, we have profoundly altered the earth system, specifically the carbon cycle. And we've put a lot more of those greenhouse gases that were sort of stored underground for hundreds of thousands of millions of years now into the atmosphere, into the active carbon cycle. That means that the earth is absorbing more heat. It's like we've thickened up this blanket around the earth. It means the temperature's climbing. It also means that we're putting our weather on steroids and we are upsetting the sort of basic conditions and sort of delicate balances that have really underpinned um, human flourishing 
over the last few centuries. Sorry, that was straight away getting into a few bits of jargon, but all pointing at the same basic reality, which is that humans through our last couple of hundred years of development have altered the basic sort of conditions on which, you know, our communities depend on for their survival. We're seeing the consequences of that play out, particularly through a worsening extreme weather in, in Australia, through you know, deadly heat waves, uh, worsening floods, worsening fire seasons. These are having a very direct impact on our communities, on our infrastructure, on our health. It's affecting all of us, and this is very clear from that recent survey I mentioned. I mean, almost all Australians have had some experience of extreme weather disasters in recent years, and that's had some impact on them. But it's disproportionately impacting a number of different groups. We see a big urban-rural divide, not surprisingly. It's regional, rural, remote Australia that are more vulnerable to these increasing extreme weather events. And as I mentioned, the impacts on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are particularly acute and coming on top of a long history of colonialism, obviously. We've changed our planet. That's having very real impacts on us. Those impacts are going to continue because due to past inaction, due to not listening and acting on the scientific warnings, we've baked a certain amount of change into the system. And so whether we talk climate crisis, climate catastrophe, climate change, global warming, that's essentially what we're talking about. There's other ways we're altering our planet as well with similar negative effects. That's the impacts and science side of the equation. And then I know what we increasingly are keen to talk about and have to talk about is how do we get ourselves out of that pickle? And the short answer is, you know, our generation and generations to come, it's about changing pretty much the way we do everything. It's changing the way we produce energy, leaving our fossil fuels in the ground, moving quickly to renewable energy sources, using less energy, consuming less, changing the way we move around, you know, changing the way we get our food and everything else and bringing that all back into line with, you know, ecology and the, the basic facts about the earth system that we depend upon. Now, that's often in the past been felt of as a lot of sacrifice, but the reality is that so much of what we have to do, it brings wonderful benefits as well. And we really can, indeed must be, tackling climate at the same time as we're tackling poverty, working to reduce inequality, working to improve our health, because a lot of these things we need to do, they're exactly the things we need to be doing to be building stronger and more equal communities as well. My mind is buzzing because. As you were articulating what our changing climate actually means in terms of impacts, I was thinking, you know, the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events becoming greater and greater and greater to the point of complete calamity, to the point of the thing that we're trying to avoid, which is our extinction. And these forces of globalization and industrialization over the last few centuries have propelled us into this period of economic growth where I feel like our civilization has flourished and things have never been so good for a lot of people, but also things at a really macro level in our ecosystems and in our communities have never been so bad. Wealth and growth is this yardstick for progress. But in fact, we are going to have to change a lot about our assumptions of what is good and what is good for the planet and for society. And I think that's a really good place to go next. The latest IPCC report 
the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They've just concluded their most recent assessment cycle. And I was hoping you could briefly outline what has come out of that report and what the scientists are telling us. What do we need to do, as you said, to get our emissions plummeting? And do you think this will happen in our lifetime? Well, this is the most comprehensive assessment of the state of climate science ever undertaken. And there's one of these great big assessments that comes around every few years, and it's an enormous undertaking. And this will actually be the the last such assessment during what is an absolutely make-or-break period for action on climate change. So I just set it up this way because I know people will have seen, read many climate change reports with uh, very significant warnings in them. But this one, I think, has particular gravity to it because we won't get another one of these until we're at a point where either we'll be on track to a much brighter, more sustainable future or we'll really have gone ourselves into deep trouble if we don't listen to this. Anyway, so what is it saying? I mean, it's really in three main parts. Now, the first part deals with the physical science of climate change. And the key message there is that we have to roughly halve global emissions this decade. No ifs, no buts. Now that's because we have got to a situation where, as mentioned before, we have seen the impacts of climate change unfolding with very real consequences. If we are to limit future harms, and the goal here, which people will have heard, is to limit warming to 1.5 degrees and to do everything possible there because every increment of warming beyond that gets us into a more dangerous territory. We need to Half global emissions this decade. So that's basically the task at hand. Now, Australia being a very developed country that's built a lot of wealth off extractive industries, fossil fuel industries, we need to aim a lot higher than that if we're to play our part globally. So that was what the first part of the report told us, what it is we're dealing with and why. Um, the second part then deals with all the impacts of climate change that you know will be all too well known to a lot of people listening. I'm sure this is the increase in the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events, as I said, affecting us all, but disproportionately affecting many portions of the population. Obviously, the younger you are, the more of a life you have ahead, the more stake you have in this. And the unfortunate reality as well is that whatever inequalities exist in society, between genders, between generations, between races, they all tend to get exacerbated by climate change, which is just piling additional pressures onto everything else. So that's the really confronting part. You know, we, we've got ourselves pretty close to the precipice. We are living through an age of climate consequences. We've got to get our emissions plummeting through the 2020s. But the most important part of all of this latest report is that, you know, we can actually do this. There are no technical economic barriers to getting out of fossil fuels, to building new clean industries, to getting emissions halved globally and much more than halved in Australia. It can be done. And it's just a matter of political will. But it's also a matter of doing it smart. And just where you left off before about how, you know, this is not just about technical fixes. It is about reimagining the future. It really is. And I think to put, make a bit more concrete what we were touching on before about the opportunity here, we just take uh, the way we produce energy. It's one example. Of course, in the past, we've been heavily reliant on fossil fuels. So dependent on big fossil fuel corporations and a lot of the wealth flowing into this very centralized power imbalance kind of setup. It's the potential of renewable energy to really democratize the way we do energy. So, you know, anywhere, any country, part of any country pretty much can be tapping into its local renewable energy sources, can be owning its own, you know, productive uh, assets, um, can be supporting local livelihoods. So we can actually be doing a lot 
through the energy transition to be, you know, taking apart some of those sort of power imbalances that have been cemented through dependence on fossil fuels and, you know, supporting a lot of, you know, local economies and uh, working to reduce inequality. And if we look similarly at our food systems, you know, same thing, solutions there, a big part of it is relocalizing, it's putting, you know, the power back into, you know, it being more distributed. And whichever part of this equation we look at, you see similar sorts of things. So, there really are ways to, you know, move forwards together in ways that is tackling climate change, but that is reimagining the future in ways that are really quite exciting. But you know, it takes it takes vision and it takes courage, and we're going to need a lot of that over the years ahead. We certainly are transitioning our economy in a way that shares resources and wealth and includes people in a way that doesn't leave them behind is vital because there's always this inherent risk in any kind of transformation that the needs of our most vulnerable communities are not properly accounted for. And it creates a situation potentially where someone is in a worse off position than the one they're already in. And that's obviously what we're trying to avoid. And that does bring me to my next question around how Climate change and poverty are so inextricably linked. We're seeing now the effects of the climate crisis being felt more widely and strongly than we ever have before. And negotiations at the COP27 in Egypt ended with this historic loss and damage fund for nations most vulnerable to climate change. And a lot of those nations are our neighbours here in Australia. I think that was a really pivotal moment in trying to. I guess, envision what Australia can do to protect our neighbours in the Pacific Islands region. Is what we are doing, first of all, anywhere near enough, is I guess my question to start off with. And what further action do we need to see from government and industry here? Is it enough? Short answer. No, (laughs) it's not. Certainly, we are making progress on a few fronts. But um, there is a tremendous amount of work to do now, next year, through the 2020s. And I think we're just at the beginning of that journey, um, which, again, can be quite daunting. It's exciting as well because there is enormous untapped opportunities in every sense. And we can break down actual climate change and the thing we need to do into a few main areas. I mean, the first most important is tackling the root cause of the problem. It is getting ourselves off coal, oil and gas. It's doubling down on building a renewable energy-powered future. We are making some strides there. The world is making some strides, but it's abundantly clear from the latest science, from the latest IPCC report, we have to step that up. Uh, We do really quickly. As well as tackling the root cause of the problem, there is a lot we have to do as well to be um, working to build the resilience of our communities to what's coming, and in particular to be supporting and following the lead of communities in various parts of Australia, in our region and beyond, who are particularly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and don't have the same resources to adapt. Now, Australia certainly has made efforts in the past and has appropriately prioritised some of the most vulnerable communities in the Pacific when it's providing you know, assistance to climate change adaptation. But not only do we need to be stepping that up further, we can't, on the one hand, be doing that while still fueling the problem in the first place. So, you know, really our first responsibility to the Pacific, to vulnerable communities around the world, is to be doing far more to accelerate our, our energy transformation and, 
you know, Australia still has so much untapped potential there because we're so blessed with clean energy opportunities here. We can not only be transforming our own energy system, but we can, you know, be building new clean export industries. We can be helping to support the wider world's decarbonization efforts. We've been a big part of the problem in the past as a big fossil fuel giant. We can equally be a huge part of the solution in the future, but there's a lot more we have to do there. And then the third element, which you already touched on, is we've got tackling the root causes, working, supporting each other with building resilience to the impacts that can't be avoided. And then there is facing up to the very real permanent loss and damage that is occurring due to climate change. And, you know, there, there are heartbreaking examples of this that we see. I mentioned at the start, I'd had the privilege of going up to the Torres Strait Islands a few years ago, where, you know, the reality of climate change really does hit you in the face. I mean, you see the, the loss of land and homes and, and sacred sites to, to, to rising seas. And obviously you see the same in many parts of the Pacific where you have low-lying atoll communities. We have to do everything possible to tackle or cause the problem, support with coping with the impacts that can't be avoided, but also if communities are facing that permanent loss and damage, just being forcibly displaced, uh, whether it's seeing their livelihood sources of sustenance swept away by climate change, it's a country that has you know, developed considerable wealth through the burning of fossil fuels and is in a position to help address that injustice, we need to be doing more there. So that means really having the back of Pacific leaders and communities who've rightly pushed for, I think, about 30 years now, the Loss and Damage Fund finally got it over the line in Egypt last year, but there's a lot now that needs to be done to make sure that that's working, that the support's flying where it needs. We can be supporting the setup of that we also need to be putting money into those sorts of funds so that we're playing our part. So back to your question, are we doing enough? We're on the path, but we've got a lot more to do on every front. And um, I am optimistic that we will be doing a lot more in the coming years. A lot of work to do. Absolutely. I want to talk about the state of housing in Australia. And we know that it's clear that the impacts of global warming are having a really detrimental effect on people who are experiencing or at risk of homelessness already, but it's also creating a new funnel into displacement and long-term homelessness for a lot of people that have never been touched by this issue before. From things like reducing the safety and security of property, coupled with this growing problem of housing affordability, I feel like natural disasters are becoming a leading cause of homelessness for a lot of communities in a really new and terrifying way. And some of this has been fueled by current and emerging patterns of weather phenomena experienced in Australia. And climate models are predicting an El Nino is developing, which is increasing the risk of more disasters. My question to you is around how we're using the data available to us to reduce the likelihood of extreme weather events and how can we be better prepared to respond to and recover from them in the future? Mm. Well, the first thing the data shows us is that there's so much we can do to limit future harms by doing everything in the present moment and through this decade to be reining in our emissions and working with the world to accelerate our move out of fossil fuels. Now, I know that's an obvious thing to state, but um, that's really important in terms of having a survivable future. Important to the point that our success in these coming years in tackling the root causes of climate change is probably going to be the difference between a future in which most communities 
albeit with a great deal of support and determination, can still thrive and flourish, and one where a lot of us just get overwhelmed by um, you know, the pace of change. So that's the first thing the data is showing us, just how urgent we need to get our emissions down. The other thing it shows us, of course, is, and we were able to contribute to this last year with a, a climate risk map that we developed, which was able to show all the way around the country uh, the exposure to a variety of different hazards, fires, floods, um, extreme heats, uh, storminess, various other things, so that we were able to see right down to a local level the risks that were there now, the risks that we would be facing by 2030, by 2050 under different scenarios for emissions. And you see, I mean, again, the actions we take now to reduce emissions are very consequential in terms of future risks, but having that sort of data also helps us be more prepared for what is coming. And it means that we can be developing a really good framework for climate change adaptation that understands the local risks where people are able to sort of access support that they need to build the resilience that is going to help them get through some of these risks. It'll help us identify you know, if there are areas where hard decisions have to be made about, you know, managed relocations, that's doing that proactively on a community's own terms and so forth. So acknowledging the problem, understanding the risks is, of course, really important. And then I think as has been the theme of our whole discussion, doing it in ways that leave nobody behind is, is the bottom line. Because if we reflect just on what happened in the Northern Rivers last year, of course, that affected an enormous number of people. But those who really copped it, of course, people who, because of their lesser economic means, are more likely to be living on marginal lands, more exposed to floods, more likely, therefore, to lose their properties, but also less likely to have been able to afford insurance, and therefore, for various reasons, you know, much harder for people to get back on their feet. And that's where impacts of climate change, as you've indicated, you know, do lead to permanent displacements, more people being less t- left homeless. So I think we have to use that understanding of risks to um, you know, providing much more sort of targeted support where it's needed with everything from might be retrofits on properties that are going to be useful through to having those challenging but still important discussions about where it's necessary to, to be moving out of harm's way. Absolutely. And I think it just comes down to understanding that while the environment is a force of nature to some extent beyond our control, we do have agency and curbing our emissions will reduce warming. And as a result, extreme weather events that we're constantly experiencing will be less persistent. And that's what we're striving towards. And I think we can really work together to reorient our society to better support vulnerable communities and address some of these systemic inequalities that exist. So as we approach the end of our conversation, and I've really enjoyed it, I'm keen to know your vision for a sustainable and equitable climate future. And Simon, you're obviously working at the forefront of this movement. You have seen and done a lot by the sounds of it, And I'm really grateful for the way that you've shared your insights. What kind of role does research and advocacy play in achieving really tangible policy change? And what kinds of things do you think we need to see from all of the actors in this space? Mm. The thing I always tell myself is that, you know, every positive choice we make right now, every tonne of carbon we're leaving in the ground, every fraction of a degree of avoided warming, 
that's all not only limited, limiting future harms, but it is all an investment in what is you know, a, a much brighter, more sustainable, healthier future. And one thing that I know keeps me personally going when sort of being confronted with these very frightening realities about climate change is, you know, that uh, sense, that knowledge, that vision of what could be, of, you know, what the light at the end of this, um, you know, tunnel is. And I think the role of research and advocacy in that, I mean, it's a few things. First of all, it is painting that future. It's, um, you know, it's recognizing what smart climate solutions are and the sorts of uh, vision they're going to enable us to build. And we touched a bit on energy before is one example, but there's so many. And we get immediate benefits when we start doing the right things. I think the most obvious example of this is that a staggering number of premature deaths can be attributed to the particulate pollution from burning coal, oil, and gas. So even before we're dealing with the impacts of climate change, there's an enormous toll on our health just from the air pollution that comes from, from fossil fuels. And that means that, you know, uh, immediately, once we can move to cleaner sources of energy, we've got this great benefit for our health. And I think that's just one of many examples of you know, the things that we need to be communicating. And so, of course, research into the, into the science um, and those what we know about the climate system and the impacts of climate science that is and remains hugely important in driving home the urgency of action. I think the research into the lived experience of climate change is so important in just uh, giving voice to affected communities, but also in steering us towards smart solutions. But then now that we are over a sort of political tipping point, hopefully, <laughs> dare I say that, and also in a bit of, you know, a... a you know, I mean, climate scientists obviously talk a lot about tipping points in the climate system. And, um, you know, if you get to a certain point, then sort of rapid things tend to happen. I think there's, there's something about that in our sort of political systems as well. When it comes to social change, that's hoping that we have reached a bit of a threshold. There's some momentum, there's some wind in the sails now. But as we've acknowledged, there's so much work to do. And I think that's going to still require a lot of research and scholarship and everything from getting the policies right and there's been big policy fights, of course, at the moment around the safeguard mechanism. We've got another one coming up over fuel issues and standards. These things can be incredibly dry and boring, but they are important to get right, to get things moving. So I think research into the policy, we see the various technical solutions we have, but above all, you know, doing it in ways that's uh, giving voice to communities so that we're building this, um, you know, this bright and vibrant future. You know, I truly believe in that's what keeps me going, the fact that by changing the way we produce energy, changing the way we grow our food, changing the way we move around, you know, listening to each other, being kinder to each other, we can create a future where we have limited harms from climate change, but uh, you know, have met so many other goals and values that we all share as well. And just a final thought to leave you on that. Listeners will know that we we, we lost an absolute giant in the climate science world recently in Professor Will Stephan, who was someone who um, taught us so much not only about the climate crisis, but um, so many of us how to think about it as well and sort of how to stay sane and motivated and hopeful. And one thing he told many of us was that people often say that hope leads to action, but it's the other way around. You know, it's action, getting on this virtuous cycle, taking these steps. That's then what gives that momentum, creates that hope, keeps us going and makes us realise that we can, you know, we, we, we can do this, we can build a better future. So... You know, I think that's something I felt to be very true. And, um, you know, we take, keep taking these steps and we've got so much more we can do. And then you know, we start to turn things around. Yeah, it's one step at a time. 
The future feels really bright. It feels hopeful. And it's one that we can all be a part of. So thank you for joining us, Simon. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Marissa. Lovely talking to you.